Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you hungry and needy. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the number one tourist attraction in the world? I wonder if you know. The last service I had people shouting out all kinds of guesses. Maybe you're thinking of some place that you've been to in Europe or somewhere else in the Far East. But it might surprise you to learn today that with over 92 million visitors a year, by certain counts, the most visited tourist attraction in the world is the Dubai Mall. <laughs> There's a lot of malls in the UAE. And anyone who's visited here and they come to the UAE for the first time, they're expecting a desert, and then all of a sudden they see, wow, they've got a whole bunch of malls. And you can go to any mall you want, get almost anything that you want at the mall. I'm not much of a mall guy, but my favorite mall, I think, is Marina Mall. Because uh, I, I really like uh, the gym there. I go to the gym there, actually. And I also really like Five Guys Burgers and Fries. And it's kind of a paradox, both those things. Um, sometimes, though, if we're really honest, for some Christians, if I were to ask about your favorite tourist attraction or favorite mall, sometimes it's how we think about the church, isn't it? The church is like a tourist attraction or a mall. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, I'm talking about the rise over the past few decades especially, in evangelical circles especially, of a certain phenomenon that we can call consumer Christianity. And the rise of what many uh, theologians are calling the attractional church. And it's this idea that we have as evangelical Christians, that church is all about me, where I'm going to get my needs met. So we begin to speak of, and I've heard people say this, I want to go and have the best, quote-unquote, worship experience. As though worship was all about your experience, rather than what you're bringing to the Lord. Uh, or we begin to think about, well, which church has the best programs and, you know, the best uh, ministries that are going to help me, that are going to uh, bless my children, that are going to help them. We've begun to think that somehow church were all about us or me. And I want to submit to you this morning that consumer Christianity is the total opposite of biblical Christianity. As we get into our text today, you'll see the author of Hebrews is going to get really, really practical. He's going to get in our face a little bit. All of the truths that he's laid out over uh, the last several chapters, what we've seen week after week of who Christ is and what Christ has done, now the author is going to tell us, as a result of all that, here's then how you should live. And brothers and sisters, I pray that our hearts would be so assured and moved by who Jesus is 
and what Jesus has done for us, that we would live our lives with commitment to one another, that we would live lives of biblical Christianity, lives that are marked by faith, hope, and love for each other. As we read our text, I just want to show you the structure of the passage. Uh, in the original Greek, it's all one sentence, verses 19 to 25. Uh, what you'll see here is there are two reasons that the author gives us for what he's going to say, how we must live, and then three commands telling us how then we must live. All right, And the two reasons are marked by the words, since we have. All right, So you'll notice those in verse 19 and verse 21 there again, since we have. And then the three commands are marked by the words, let us. All right? In other words, we must. Let us is in verse 22, again in verse 23, and then in verse 24. And you'll also see very interesting, look at verse 22. He says, full assurance of faith. There's the word faith. In verse 23, he talks about the confession of our hope. There's the word hope. And in verse 24, he says we are to consider how to stir one another up to love. Faith, hope, and love, a summary of the biblical Christian life. So with that structure, let me read the text for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." So first we see there two reasons for the way that we should live. Two reasons for how we should live. And the first one is, since we have confidence. Since we have confidence. Did you see that in verse 19? The author says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. The verse begins with the word, therefore. And it's very important when we're reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, that we make note of the Bible's therefores. The word therefore is a signal that the author is making a logical transition from everything that he has said before, in light of everything that I've said in multiple chapters in Hebrews. Therefore, this is the summary of how that affects your life. We've looked the last uh, several weeks through chapters 7 to 10 of Hebrews, and I told you this theme again and again, we have a better priest who has offered a better sacrifice that forever cleanses us from sin. He has gained entry into a better sanctuary, the very presence of God, and he has inaugurated a better covenant, giving us new hearts and through which we have access to God. In other words, three words, Jesus is better. And what the author is saying here is because Jesus is better, therefore, this then is how you should live. Uh, you know, we practice uh, expository preaching here at ECC. We uh, value the exposition of God's word 
It's a distinctive a mark of our church and should be of every gospel preaching church. And what we do in expositional preaching is we seek to explain the Bible so that the main point of the sermon is the main point of the passage being preached. We go through books of the Bible, explain what the text says, and then apply God's Word to the hearts and lives of God's people. Well, the great model of expository preaching is right here, is the author of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, We know that this is God's inspired Word. And this was originally a sermon where he is expositing the Old Testament Scripture and applying it to the people's lives. And like any good preacher, uh, before he makes application here, he's quickly summarizing everything that we've seen. Everything that he's explained so far in chapters 7 to 10, he's going to summarize in these two points, saying since we have this and since we have that, and then he's going to apply it. So here's the summary. First, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And you see, God is holy. We serve a holy creator God who is righteous and pure, blazing in his purity, perfect in all his ways. We, on the other hand, are sinners. We are sinful. And we don't deserve access or entry into the presence of a holy God. No, instead we face judgment, condemnation. This is from the very beginning of the story of the Bible. You go back to the book of Genesis and you see Adam and Eve who were created to have fellowship with God. They're in the garden. They have direct access. They're in God's presence Then they rebel and sin against God and they are banished from His presence. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God Almighty making a way for sinful human beings to be brought back into fellowship with Him, to be brought back into His presence. And here what the author is telling us in Hebrews is this has taken place and has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ that we now have confidence of access into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Because the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, died on the cross, poured out his blood in death, took upon himself the penalty that sinners deserve, all who repent of their sin and trust him in him now have freedom, confidence of access into God's presence. You may be here this morning and You have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. You might be here and you've never known Him personally as your Lord, as your Redeemer. And I want to call you and invite you that there is forgiveness of sins and free access into a relationship with our holy Creator God. Freedom from judgment for sins and the hope of eternal life through Jesus. So I want to invite you and even call you to turn from your sins today and trust in Him and receive this confidence for access into the holy places, into God's presence now, and the promise of living in His presence forever. Notice what the author says. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. This is a a, a way into God's presence 
a, a right of access that was not granted in generations past. It is something new that has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a living way because Christ has risen from the dead. He died as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. He has blazed away into the heavenly home for all those who trust him. This is a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. His flesh, Jesus, who is fully man like us, has gone through the curtain into the presence of God and made a way for us to follow. You recognize the reference to the curtain there. In the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, in the tabernacle and later the temple, God's presence dwelled in this inmost compartment or section called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And the way into the presence of God there was blocked by this gigantic curtain, this veil, before the most holy place. When Jesus died, when Jesus died, as we read in the Gospels, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, a supernatural act by God signaling that through Christ, the way has been opened. Confidence and boldness to enter God's presence, not from human initiative, but by God's grace. And the way that stood closed for thousands of years has been opened. The immediate access into the presence of God, the face-to-face -face fellowship that Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden has been provided to us through what Jesus has done. He's granted us access. That's the first part of the author's summary of everything we've seen from uh, all the chapters prior. We have confidence. And here's the second part of his summary. Since we have, did you notice that? Since we have, verse 21 a great priest over the house of God. You might remember that under the old covenant, uh, the priests from the tribe of Levi were appointed as mediators between man and God. They served as the people's representatives to approach God. But all of those mediators were flawed. They were fallen, sinful, finite. They died. They were insufficient. They could never really bring us to God. But we've seen over and over in Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who is fully God and fully man, existing eternally as God the Son. He took on flesh and became fully human. As God the Son, he has direct entry into God's presence. And as one who is fully man, became our high priest. He is fully human in every way like us, yet without sin. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's will. He perfectly kept God's law. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, as the text of Hebrews tells us. And yet, he is able to sympathize with us. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. His heart overflows with compassion for sinners. And this one who is fully God, fully man, has been appointed to be our priest, our mediator forever. He has entered into God's presence and the text has told us he ever lives to intercede for us. So that even now, our great priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, is praying 
for you and I who have trusted him, praying that our faith will not fail. And the Father hears his prayers. Did you see what he says? He says, we have a great priest over the house of God. And that word house there is an interesting pun. It's a double meaning, right? Uh, So on the one hand, the house refers to the sanctuary, the temple, God's dwelling place. Jesus is the great priest who is appointed as Lord over God's new dwelling place, God's sanctuary. But on the other hand, the word house also signifies a family, a household, a community of people, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 3. So to say that Jesus is the great priest over the house of God is to say that he is the great priest over us, his church, his people, And we are God's temple, God's dwelling place in whom God dwells. And this is a summary of everything we've seen in Hebrews so far. These are the reasons the author gives us for how we should live. Because of what we have, this then, he says, is how you should live. And he transitions to the next section. And in verses 22 to 25, you'll see three commands for how we should live. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, how is it that all your sermons always have three points? And uh, I'll say, well, I learned it from the author of Hebrews, because he has here uh, three points, three points of application, three commands for how we should live as a result of who Jesus is and what he's done. First command, verse 22, we must draw near in faith. We must draw near in faith. Let's read that verse. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, the author is commanding us, exhorting us, inviting us to approach, to boldly approach and draw near to our God and Father, our Lord and King. Since we have access and confidence, since we have a great priest, here's what we must do. We must draw near. And by the way, that, uh, that phrase, draw near, that word in the original language, is, is a very specific word that is used to refer to drawing near to God as a congregation, as an assembly, to drawing near to God in congregational worship. You'll see it used that way in Exodus and in Deuteronomy when it speaks of the assembling of the people of Israel before the Lord at Mount Sinai. You'll see it used that way in the book of Leviticus. I can point you to Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 7 where it says, the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. They assembled, in other words. They approached God together corporately. So in other words, when the author is saying we must draw near, I think he's speaking primarily of our approach to God, our drawing near to God as a church, as his people, in congregational worship, in gatherings like this, in congregational prayer as we assemble as a church to seek our Lord's face together. Yes, we must also draw near and approach God individually in our individual lives. We ought to seek God's face in prayer. We also ought to seek the Lord together as families. I want to encourage the fathers here that you ought to be those who lead your household in drawing near to God in prayer, in family worship. 
But primarily, the reference here is to approach God as his people, to draw near to him, individually and corporately. You know, imagine if you were to go home after the service and all of a sudden you find uh, a, an invitation delivered at your home. Or you open your inbox and you have an email. Or someone actually comes to meet you in person to give you this invitation. And they say, uh, the ruler of this country, His Highness, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, is inviting you to meet with him at such and such a time uh, he wants to invite you to come into his majlis, uh, to meet with him personally, and he's going to talk with you and hear uh, how you're doing and how life is in this country, and he wants to um, listen to you and listen to requests that you may have. I don't know one person in this room who would not make that meeting a priority. You're not going to reply to that email and say, actually, you know, I have these other commitments or these other appointments uh, I, I'm scheduled to play golf, you know. I, I don't think that I can make it. No, you would cancel everything. You would clear up your schedule and say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to meet with the king. In fact, I, I, I'm probably betting that the night before, you probably wouldn't sleep very well. You'd wake up early. You'd want to make sure everything is just right, right? You'd probably look in the mirror a hundred times, make sure every hair, for those of you who have it, every hair is in place, Right? If you're a woman, you're going to make sure your makeup is all right. right? You're going to be all set. I'm going to make sure I, I, I make the most of this. I want to make a good impression. I want to come. This is a priority. You, you, if, if you had work on that day, you'd probably call your boss and say, I can't make it. I have a more important appointment. Friends, we have an invitation from a much, much higher authority. We have a far greater invitation, an invitation to draw near, to talk with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our creator God himself has summoned us into his heavenly majlis, not once for a little while, but week after week, every Lord's day, he says, come, come and meet with me. I'm here to meet with you. Not just every Lord's day as a people, but individually in our private lives, he calls us to, he summons us to meet with him, to converse to pour out our hearts before him in prayer. Why would we neglect such an awesome invitation? What other priority or commitment could be more important? You know, when we come to the Lord, we don't need to get all dressed up. You don't have to make sure your tie is just right and the knot and the dimple is perfectly tied. You don't need to make sure all your makeup is in place. You don't really, the Bible doesn't say anything about how you have to dress. You don't have to wear your best possible clothes. But it does give us certain requirements for how we are to come. If you're looking at, these, uh, at this verse here, verse 22, he gives us four requirements for how we have to come. Four things that we should be mindful of. First, we are to come with a true heart. Do you see that? Let us draw near with a true heart. And that's simply to say we are to draw near with sincerity. With sincerity. That we're not coming out here or approaching God uh, to make a show, an external show of our own piety or, you know, how holy we are. We're not coming here in pretense with, you know, concerned about externals but where our hearts are not right with God. No, we're called to come with a sincere heart, with loyalty to Him, and with a heart that's devoted to Him and His Word. 
We are to come in full assurance of faith, the author says. In full assurance of faith, which is simply to say we have to come boldly, confidently, joyfully into God's presence. That we come really believing that what he has spoken is true. That Jesus really is better than anything else this world has to offer. That he is our perfect sacrifice. That his blood does avail for us. That our sins are washed away. We come trusting in God's promises. Trusting in what God has done and assured that he is good. We come in full assurance of faith. Uh, For some of us, you know, our consciences cause us to linger. Uh, Sometimes we might feel afraid because we are recognizing that we are sinful. And indeed, it's good to reflect upon and confess our sins. But the author reminds us that we come, we draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've talked about how the blood of Christ is able to purify our consciences from all our sins. Unlike the animal sacrifices of old, those sacrifices were offered again and again, and they perpetually reminded people of their sins. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice tells us that we have been clean, made clean by trusting in Him, by faith, that our hearts have been sprinkled clean by His blood. He has washed us clean, and we can come boldly with a clean conscience, trusting in faith, in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. And then the final phrase that the author gives us here is with our bodies washed with pure water. And there's some debate around that phrase, but I think that the best way to understand that is a reference to baptism, as many scholars do. Um, That would be clearly signaled to those who were first reading this, that this is speaking of Christian baptism. Not that baptism itself saves us from our sins, But the washing that we experience in baptism, where we go into the waters and come up, points to the cleansing that has taken place in our hearts by Jesus' sacrificial death. That in baptism, we are declaring to the world that we have trusted in what Christ has done for us, and we are signifying externally what has happened internally We are confessing our hope that Jesus has made us clean before God. And the church then, in, in the act of baptism, is affirming that this has taken place in this person's life and we see the fruit of it. Baptism declares our allegiance to Christ and His people. And I know that there are some here who you've made a profession of faith and maybe you have hesitated or refrained from getting baptized. I want to encourage you to think about the fact that baptism is a command in Scripture. It's the first step of obedience for every Christian. And I want to encourage you, exhort you to be baptized and to draw near as one who has declared your allegiance to the Lord. So we are commanded to draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and having been baptized. And the question for all of you, all, all of us this morning, dear friends, is simply this. What's keeping you? What is it that is hindering you or holding you back? The Lord God Almighty has summoned us. He has welcomed us into his presence, into his heavenly majlis. What is it that's preventing you from 
coming. You know, some of you might be weary. You might feel tired. You're heavy laden. And to you, the Lord Jesus says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe some of you, someone here might be feeling like you've blown it, that you've been drifting and fallen way off the track and you feel unworthy. You know, I was talking to a sister several months ago and I asked her about her attendance in worship and I said, I haven't seen you at church for a while. And she said, oh, pastor, I feel so unworthy. I, I don't feel I'm worthy to come. And, and if that's you, I just want to say to you, uh, dear friend, our entry into God's presence is not based on how, whether we feel worthy or not. Our entry into God's presence is based on the fact that Christ has made us worthy by his perfect sacrifice. His sacrifice is worthy. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, and he has granted us boldness and confidence to come. You know, for these Christians uh, to whom the author of Hebrews was speaking, they were hindered because of persecution. They were looking for safety. They were afraid to come because coming to church, publicly identifying as a Christian, could mean imprisonment or even death. I don't think that's the case here in Abu Dhabi. I think in the UAE we enjoy a great privilege of freedom of worship. Maybe it's a consumer mindset. Maybe drawing near to God in worship has become just another optional activity on your list of various things that you do in your week and just one other thing that, yeah, maybe I can go, maybe not. It's just an optional benefit. This, this even shows, this consumer mindset sometimes shows in the way that we speak about worship, isn't it? You'll often see, and, and this has become very common in evangelicalism today, where people say the church offers worship services at so-and-so time and so-and-so time. Or, you know, the, the church is offering an online worship service for you to watch. Well, I don't think that's the way that the Bible speaks about a worship service. You see, we've begun to think that the worship service is something that is an event that the professionals here do or that the church does and offers to you as a service to you. That's not how the Bible uses the phrase worship service. No, what the Bible is speaking about when it speaks about a worship service is what we offer as service to God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. We together as the church are serving God when we gather in worship. So, dear brothers and sisters... Don't neglect the privilege and the blessing that we have of free access to our God himself. Draw near. That's our first command. The second command is in verse 23. We must draw near in faith. Second, we must hold fast our hope. We must hold fast our hope. Let me read this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You might remember again the context of Hebrews is that this was a sermon, originally a sermon, preached by a concerned pastor to weary Christians who had begun to drift. These uh, Hebrew Christians had been facing affliction and persecution and they were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and go back to the old covenant law. And the author is speaking to them, reminding them of who Jesus is, reminding them of what Jesus has done. And he is saying, don't let go of Jesus. There is no hope anywhere else. 
Hold fast means hold firmly, hold firmly to what you believe, to the confession that you have declared, the truth that you have declared about who Christ is. And he says, hold fast the conf- our confession of hope, what we believe, the truths that are given to us in God's word, produce hope. Not empty hope, not something that maybe, maybe not. Oh, I hope that'll happen. Not that kind of hope. No, a hope that is certain and secure an absolute confidence that the Lord God will fulfill his promises. Not one word of his will fall to the ground. You might remember from Hebrews 6, he talks about our hope as an anchor for the soul. So that when the storms of life come, when the winds and waves beat against the ship of our lives, we are anchored, sure and steadfast, confident because God will fulfill his promises. His promises are unbreakable and therefore our hope is unshakable. God himself has sworn to fulfill his promises to his people. God himself has sworn that Jesus will serve as our high priest, our mediator forever. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're weak. Maybe you're here and you're tempted to abandon the faith. Maybe, dear friend, there's some sin that's entangled you, that's been luring you away from Christ. And I want to encourage you. I know things can get hard, so hard. I know that you often feel tired and weary. I know that for some of you, following Jesus comes at great cost. It's costly. But friends, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. He will keep us to the end. And our hope will not disappoint nor put us to shame. We hold fast our confession. We hold firmly to Christ. He who has promised is faithful. The Lord will be faithful to his promises to you. And you know what the key is to holding on in hope? You ask the question, how do we stay faithful? How do we stay hope-filled in this world that is filled with trials and temptations that rock our faith? The answer is that we do it together. We do it together. That leads us to the third of the author's commands here for how we must live in light of what Christ has done for us. We must draw near in faith. We must hold fast in hope. And third, we must encourage one another in love. Verses 24 and 25, we must encourage one another in love. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, as one pastor said, living the Christian life Trying to live the Christian life without church membership is like driving on the highway at night without headlights. Is it possible to drive on Sheikh Zayed Road at 140 kilometers an hour with your headlights off at night? That's certainly possible, but it's also very dangerous and could be deadly. Friends, in a far greater way, trying to live the Christian life solo, without covenant commitment in the body of Christ in the local church, 
is possible, but it's very dangerous. You see, Christianity, the Christianity of the biblical variety, biblical Christianity, is not just about you and your private relationship with the Lord. No, friends, our relationship with the Lord is lived out by walking with His people. It's lived out in community. It's a relationship that is built with other believers. Biblical Christianity is fundamentally church-shaped. Did you see what the author says? He says, Consider, let us, we must consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. And that means that we are living in relationships with one another, where we care for one another, where we have a mind for one another, where considering how am I going to be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters? How am I going to stir them up? Where you're concerned not just about your own spiritual growth, but the spiritual growth of other members in the body of Christ. And the word there for stir up, by the way, is, is the word provoke. It's a sharp word, all right? Spur one another on. It means that we're nudging each other, you know, giving someone a gentle spiritual elbow and saying, let's, let's walk forward in the Christian life. It means that we're trying to create a culture of discipleship in the church where each brother and sister is looking out for the other, seeking to serve others, do them spiritual good, help them grow as a disciple of Jesus. And then our relationships become a little less casual and a little less comfortable because we're trying to provoke one another to spiritual growth. Friends, do you see how this is different from consumer Christianity? We don't come as consumers seeking what we can get. No, we commit to one another as contributors seeking what we can give. Consumer Christianity teaches you to try and fit the church into your life where it's just another thing that meets your needs. Biblical Christianity calls you to build your life around the local church where you're committed to live life with others and seek their spiritual good. This means we should be marked by a kind of hospitality in all of life where we're welcoming each other into one another's lives, where we're pursuing relationships in the body of Christ. I want to encourage you to welcome people into your homes. I know this has taken a hit with the pandemic, but we're way past that now, right? Try and make it a practice. Let's say, okay, on the Lord's Day, once a month or twice a month or even weekly, I'm going to invite other believers over to my home, either for lunch or in the evening, spend time with them. I'm going to invite not just my friends, but those I don't know, those who might be lonely in this community. I'm going to welcome them into my home. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to have a four-course gourmet meal. Jesus talks about giving a glass of water in Jesus' name. And sit down and get to know people. Ask them their testimonies of how they came to know the Lord. Ask them where the Lord is working in their lives. Where are they struggling? Where can you pray for them? Go out with someone for lunch after the service. Make that a weekly practice. If you don't want, can, can't bring them home, go somewhere to the mall. Spend time with one another. Let us stir one another up. Do you see what the author says is the primary way that we stir up one another? That's in verse 25. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And by the way, all commentators, and for 2,000 years, this verse has been understood when he says not neglecting to meet together. That's been understood to speak of 
the meeting, the gathering together, the assembling together of the local church on the Lord's Day, week, week after week. He's telling us, do not neglect the assembling of ourselves together in worship, public assembly of the church. And did you notice it's a double negative? He doesn't just say, and make sure that we gather together. He's saying, do not neglect to gather together. That's placing emphasis on this. He's saying we must have the utmost commitment to gathering together. And you've got to think of the context, right? These people were facing persecution for, for their identification with Christ. They were facing the prospect of imprisonment or death if they publicly gathered with the church. And so some of them had begun being absent from worship, drifting and turning away from the Lord for fear of persecution. You know, in our context, again, it's not fear of persecution that keeps us from this commitment. It's the ease of convenience so often. And one great mark of consumer Christianity over the last several decades in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, is that believers find it very easy to casually be absent from worship. Friends, this is a clear command from the Lord. What could keep us from obeying God's command? I, I find it very, very disturbing. Sometimes a commitment at work or travel or even hobbies at times keep us from obeying God's command. The Lord God has summoned us, has commanded us, has told us not to neglect this gathering. And you've got to remember the context that the author has given us, everything that he said before, because Jesus is better, because Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest who has granted us access into the Father's presence, because Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself willingly as the perfect sacrifice, pouring out his blood and dying to save us from our sins, because Jesus stands now in the heavenly places promising that we will follow by trusting in him. Because Jesus has brought us into a new covenant where our sins are forgiven and he's granted us new hearts of flesh that burn with a passion for God's glory. Because of all that, he says, don't neglect, dear Christian, don't neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And there may be good reasons at times. Of course, if you're sick or have an infectious disease, or you're bedridden, or you're imprisoned, or you're somewhere in a distant land seeking to proclaim the gospel where there is no biblical church as a missionary serving there, then that's understandable. But there should be very few reasons that should cause us to neglect the Lord's clear command. What about travel? I mean, some people ask me, well, pastor, I was traveling. Well, I would encourage you, dear saint, to build your travel around the worship gathering. Either attend worship in one place and then travel, or go to the place of your travel and seek to attend worship there. Brothers and sisters, there is no two-hour slice of your life or of your week that is as important as the assembly that God himself has commanded you not to neglect. It's called the Lord's Day with good reason. Because this day belongs to Him. You know, maybe there is something inside you right now that is resisting what I'm saying, that's growing frustrated with what I'm saying. And if that's the case, I just want to encourage you, dear brother, sister, 
Just examine your heart. What's going on in your soul? Why is there that resistance against what is the clear teaching of Scripture? You know, maybe you're going to say, Oh, pastor, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand the circumstances of my life. And to that, I want to say, I want to understand. I care, and I would hope that I could seek to understand. I I do want to know what is going on in your life, and I, I hope to be more sympathetic. But I want to assure you of this. The Lord God Almighty, when He, by His Holy Spirit, inspired His Word, His holy authoritative Word, He perfectly understood your situation and the circumstances of your life when He commanded you not to neglect His gatherings. You see, habitual absence from congregational worship, dear friends, is a sign of a serious spiritual problem and can have devastating effects as we'll see next week. When we don't show up or when we're absent from the assembly, it actually discourages others. It discourages other Christians. You see, we need one another. Why do I say it's discouraging to others? It's, it's here in the text because look what he says. He says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but instead encourage one another. The, the purpose of this gathering is for our mutual encouragement. And so when we come here, we ought to be seeking to come with that mindset. Who can I encourage today by my presence in the gathered church? That we are not just here listening, going away. No, that we are seeking to meet one another even after this uh, assembly is concluded. That we're asking questions, looking into one another's lives, encouraging one another towards obedience, where our conversations out in the courtyard or out here in the foyer is not just about the weather and how that's changed, but talking to one another about how the sermon affected you or how did the Lord speak to you today in that service. When we spend our time here in the service being actively engaged, listening to the word, not only thinking about how does this word affect me, but how does this word affect my brother or sister here in this room and how can I encourage them with this word where we're listening to the prayers intently, and when the prayer is prayed, we all say amen together, so that it's our prayer and not just the pastor's prayer. Where we're singing to one another and looking around the room, and not just having this private experience between me and the Lord, but encouraging one another, seeking to encourage one another with the truths that we're singing. The scripture tells us to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I can't tell you how electrifying and life-giving it is to my own soul. Many times when I've come in here weary, when I've come in here weak, that I see the saints singing and I hear your voices and see your faces, look in your eyes, and it lifts my soul up into the presence of God. I think about just last week when our dear brother Roy Ashton, who is battling terminal prostate cancer, was singing with all his heart, love has won, death has lost. Hallelujah for the cross. We need that kind of encouragement from one another, brothers and sisters. So many in our body are grieving today, are in need of comfort today. Will you comfort one another? Will you comfort them with the word of Christ? And this is all the more important, the author says. Did you see what he says? All the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he speaking of? He's speaking of judgment day of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming soon. 
That's not just some empty slogan that you put on a bumper sticker. The Lord really is coming soon. And he will bring salvation for all those who have eagerly waited for him. He will bring us into his heavenly kingdom and wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will bring judgment upon those who have disobeyed him. And you know what the best preparation for that day is, according to the author of Hebrews? The best preparation for that day is this gathering. And time spent with your brothers and sisters in Christ. As Pastor Christian put it beautifully, our gatherings on the Lord's day prepare us for the day of the Lord. Our meetings on the Lord's day prepare us to meet the Lord. Friends, we don't know the day of the, or the hour when Jesus will come back and we will face him and give an answer to him for the way that we've lived. Life is uncertain. Death is certain. The Lord's coming on the last day is certain. You know, we're reminded of the brevity of life and sobered. My heart's still heavy. This Monday, I remember getting this call and being told that our dear sister Jackie, her life had come to an end. So many of us feel the weight of that. We ought to be sobered by that. Thankfully, Jackie trusted in Jesus. We don't know the day when the Lord will return or the day when he might call us home. But the best way to prepare for that day, dear friends, is through meeting, gathering, spending time with your fellow members in the local church. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Enable us, Lord God, to live in harmony with one another, to not neglect assembling together, to encourage one another all the more as we wait for our Lord Jesus Christ's return. In Jesus' name, amen.